As we, um, before we dive into scripture this morning, there are a couple of announcements that I want to bring to your attention. Um, at 4 p.m., uh, there's going to be a deacon's meeting. If you're a deacon, I hope you already know about that. Um, um, and, but at 6 p.m., this is the most important thing. At 6 p.m., um, we're going to be having our first listening session um, for you to come and um, hear from the committee, uh, the bylaws uh, and per- policies and procedures committee on their proposed suggested changes to the bylaws. Um, come and hear from the committee and ask questions. That'll be at 6 p.m. this evening. Um, I hope that you can be here for that. Um, know also that on January the 18th, we'll have our regularly scheduled quarterly business meeting. Um, we are not, let me be very clear, we are not voting on bylaw changes at that meeting. We're not going to vote on bylaw changes until probably the beginning of March. However, since that will be business in front of the church, we will have an opportunity at that business meeting to have some discussion. But that is not the point of the business meeting. Or We understand what I'm saying? I don't want you to feel like that you're being rushed on the vote at all. The vote's not going to happen until, uh, until March. Um, I'm the kind of nerd who thinks that bylaw changes are a lot of fun. Most of you probably aren't that kind of nerd, and that's okay. However, what is fun is going on trips together. And it was suggested uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a group of folks, I don't even remember where we were at, um, but a group of folks had the suggestion of the possibility of us taking a group trip at some point to Williamsburg, uh, Virginia, and to see some of the stuff up in Williamsburg. And it's if only, if only you had a pastor and his wife who used to work for Colonial Williamsburg, you might be able to get a trip planned. So next Sunday, next Sunday, right after church, if you are interested in the possibility of doing a trip like this, stay. We just want to gauge interest. We want to see if there's enough interest to make pursuing this worthwhile. Um, and uh, so, so stay. If you are unable to be here, um, let us know, uh, and um, we, will, we will gather that interest uh, for you. Um, I have talked to a couple, of my fr- a couple of our friends who still work at Williamsburg, and they are very excited about the possibility of us bringing a group. Um, so, and I am excited about it. If nothing else, I'll get to go hang out with my friends. Um, and y'all, and y'all, but mainly my friends. Hey, look, one of my best friends had a baby yesterday. I got to go see her. So, so anyway, um, I do hope that you are taking advantage of this reading plan. Um, it's important for us, of course, to be in the Word of God regularly. It's important for us to, to spend time in the Word each day. Uh, I, I hope, honestly, I, my sincere and true hope is, is that you have a plan already in place that you normally do. I know a lot of folks uh, take the year, read through the Bible. There are various ways of doing that, to read through the whole Bible in a year. Um, I would encourage that. But I also think it's important for every now and then for us as a congregation to read through large passages of Scripture together. Because now, guess what? When you're sitting in Sunday school, and you've got your normal Sunday school lesson, right? But when you're sitting in Sunday school or when you're hanging out some morning at McDonald's or at the golf course drinking coffee or wherever you are, you can say, hey, man, did you read this yesterday? What did you think about that? It provides a base for us to have 
a kind of common biblical language as a congregation if we're all reading together. And so we started this week, we started at the very beginning, we're in Matthew, we're through Matthew chapter 18, Um, not too much for you to catch up. If you feel like it is too much to catch up, just jump in on Monday morning with Matthew 19. Just start wherever you can and jump on in. But we are starting in Matthew, because that's where the New Testament starts. Um, And it's important for us to remember, as we work our way through the Gospels in particular, we have four Gospels. And we have four Gospels for a reason. Because each of the four men who wrote the four Gospels, they're all telling the same story, right? But, but as we read it, we can see that the, the, the emphasis is on different syllables, depending on which Gospel you read, right? In case you can't, couldn't understand that, the emphasis is on different syllables. They put the emphasis in slightly different places, because each one of them is called by the Holy Spirit to write a Gospel to a particular person, to a particular group. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Matthew is primarily concerned with showing how Christ is the fulfillment and completion of prophecy. That's not the only thing that Matthew is doing, of course, but that is one of the big things that Matthew is doing. So as you reread through Matthew, as we study Matthew, it's important to keep that in mind. As we get to our reading today, you know, one of the other important things about reading through large passages of Scripture together is that we can see how Scripture fits together. And as we get to our passage today, what we see is that Matthew has just wrapped up one major section. There are about three of these major sections in Matthew in which Jesus teaches and then implements his teaching. And so the first part of Matthew, through his word and then his action, Jesus has shown that he has the authority to say who he is. Through, through word, primarily the Sermon on the Mount, and then through his deeds afterwards, Jesus has established and shown without doubt that he is the Son of God. And so as we're beginning a new section in chapter 9, um, we begin a new section here, and, and here what we're going to see is we're going to see that Jesus, this authority that he's established for himself, Jesus is now going to start turning that authority over, granting that authority to, imbuing his, that authority in his disciples. That's the very beginning of that section. And what we see through this is that the disciples which means those of us who are followers of Christ, that we have an important role to play in the work of the kingdom of God. We have an important role to play. I want to be clear. In God's sovereignty, God doesn't have to give us a role to play. But in God's sovereignty, he does give us a role to play. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know why he has done it that way, but he has. And one day, I will no longer see through a glass darkly. I will be in the glory of God. And the question probably won't be answered. I won't care about it anymore. And so we're in the very end of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be starting with verse number 35. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? 
Jesus continued going around to all of the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we open your word, as we dive in this morning, I just pray that the truth that is there would wash over us. I pray that we would be workers. I pray that you would stir up in us the same sort of compassion, gut-rending, heart-rending compassion that your Son displays for us, that you would stir that compassion in us for those who are distressed and dejected around us. And so, God, I pray that as we study your Word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. As I said, one of the great things about reading large chunks of Scripture altogether is you begin to catch things. You begin to see things. And so on Monday, you read chapter 4, verse 23. And in chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Does that sound familiar? We just read it, right, in verse 35. And so if you had read on Monday, you had read Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and then on Wednesday when you get to chapter 9, you read that, hopefully little bells went off in your I've just I've read this before. Well, it's one of the markers in Matthew, right, that he's starting this next chunk, right? The the, the previous chunk starts with this, with 4.23. The new chunk is starting here with 9.35. But also, if you notice, Matthew's added a word here. What's the word he's added? Continued. Showing us that this is something that Jesus is continuing to do. He's continuing to to go around and to preach and to teach and to heal. And we do see that, right? We see this this threefold aspect of Jesus' ministry that we see in Matthew. Jesus' ministry is focused on teaching, preaching, and healing. Focused on teaching, preaching, and healing. Now, Sometimes I've got a hard time differentiating between teaching and preaching. One of the reasons for that is when I come to you on Sunday morning, I I often come in a pedagogical fashion. I often come to teach. But there's a but there's a there's a there's an aspect here of what Matthew is saying is that yes, Jesus is is teaching, but notice he's teaching in the synagogue, right? He's he's teaching in their synagogue. He's that's a more closed, intimate session. So there's, there's teaching there, but then there's the preaching 
which is the, the, the larger proclamation of the gospel in the larger community beyond the walls of the synagogue. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a more intimate version, teaching, and there's this more public proclamation, preaching, of this, of this thing that Matthew calls the good news of the kingdom. Good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? Sort of a, one of those phrases that we use a lot in church, I think, but sometimes we don't actually know what it means. We don't actually think through it. If we turned over to Mark, the very beginning of Mark, Mark says that Jesus went through Galilee proclaiming the good news. And this is what Mark says Jesus' proclamation was. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That this was the good news. This was the gospel. This was what Jesus was preaching and proclaiming. So he continued to go to the towns and villages. I wanted you to know so something else here. Where does he teach? He teaches in their synagogue. Matthew is starting to create distance between Jesus and his community. There's an increasing distance between Jesus and the people that he's trying to teach and the people that he's trying to to bring into his kingdom. So he's teaching and he's preaching and he's healing. And as he's teaching and as he's preaching and as he's healing, he develops this crowd that comes around him. Now, the crowd isn't feature in Matthew as strongly as it features in Luke. In Luke, the crowd is almost its own character in the story. But in Matthew, not as much. But as, as Jesus is doing these three things, a crowd begins to follow. Now, that should tell us something. That should tell us the appeal of his teaching and of his preaching and of his healing. Right? As he's going through and doing these things... People are interested. They want to see more. They begin to follow him. And when he sees them, we're told that he has compassion on them. That he has compassion. Um, This is one of those words that is so incredibly fun in Greek. Um, Most Greek, not fun. This word is fun. Just Trying to pronounce it is fun. Splenkiznomai. Splenkiznomai. Right? I mean, that's, 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 that's one of those words. That's one of those words like that a little kid makes up. But what it is, and I, I alluded to a while ago, um, the idea was not, you know, we have this idea that our emotions are in our heart. Right? We, we're coming up on, we're coming up on, that constructed holiday that's supposed to require us to all buy a bunch of chocolate and balloons and flowers and cards and all that sort of stuff, right? Valentine's Day. 
and all of the candy that you're going to, I was, I was in line in, in the other day in, in Food Lion, and the kids in front of me had, their, her mom had gotten them all a little bit of Valentine's candy already. And what shape was the container that the Valentine's candy was in? It was in a heart. Why is everything at Valentine's Day in a heart shape? Because we see, we think about culturally, the heart as being the seat of emotion. And in particular, in the case of Valentine's Day, right, the seat of love. But in Jesus' day, and in Jesus' culture, it wasn't the heart that was the seat of emotions. It was the guts. And so what Splengzomai is, is it's, it's saying that it's, it's down in his guts he had compassion for them. And the, the deepest level he had compassion for them. He, he had so much compassion for them that it tore him up inside. We might use the phrase heart-rending, but I think we've used it so much that it's almost overused. It almost doesn't have meaning. But, but when Jesus looks at the crowd in the very depth of who he is, he is rent in two with compassion. Now it's interesting. This word in the, in, in the New Testament, this word is only used either to describe Jesus or by Jesus in a parable. So any other time when you see the word compassion in the New Testament, if it's not describing Jesus, if it's not by him in a parable, it's a different word. But, but, but to describe the compassion of the Savior this beautiful, ridiculous, absurd, hard to, pro- ugh, hard to pronounce word. Why? Why, when Jesus looks at the crowd, does he have this gut-rending response to them? Because they are wounded sheep. They are, Matthew says, distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. This image we know, right, this image of sheep and shepherd is an image that we get throughout Scripture of the relationship between God and his people. And, and you know, for most of us, our only encounter with sheep is in uh, uh, nursery rhymes, <laughs> James has got this little book of nursery rhymes that his Aunt Dolly sent him. It's great. Dolly Parton sends a book to my kid every month. It's awesome. So every month we wait to see what Aunt Dolly has sent. And a couple of months ago, she sent this book of nursery rhymes. And there's Baba Black Sheep, Have You Any Wool? Yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full. One for my master and one for my dame and one for the little boy who lives down the lane. There's also Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. And then they go to, they go to school. For most of us, that's our encounter with sheep. Nursery rhymes and pictures in nursery rhyme books. I've said before, and I'll say it again, it's not a compliment when Scripture calls us sheep. Sheep are dirty. And sheep are dumb. Sheep are so incredibly dumb. 
so dumb. They have to have a shepherd. They have to have a shepherd. You can turn a sheep out. You can turn a sheep out into the hills, and you can turn them out into the hills for a long time, but they're never going to come home on their own. The shepherd has to go out and collect them and bring them home. And if you're in an area where there are predators, you can't turn the sheep out and let them stay. The shepherd has to stay there. The sheep have no protection. Now, sheep can bite and sheep can nip, but they can't really protect themselves. They need, they have to have a shepherd to guide them. And if the sheep are going anywhere, if they're going from point A to point B, you don't have a shepherd, forget about it. You're going to end up with some over there, and you're going to end up with some over there, and you're going to end up with some over there. Now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure all sheep are related to me. All sheep have ADD. They just scatter, and they go everywhere. They have to have a shepherd, because when they don't have a shepherd, they're at the mercy of the worst of the worst that the world has to offer. They're open to every predator. They're open to every problem. They're open to every vagary of the weather. In Ezekiel, the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 34, this idea of the sheep of God's flock being without shepherds, is brought out again. And in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is, is criticizing the religious leaders of his day. He's prophesying against the religious leaders of his day because he said that they have abandoned their flock. But he says this, starting in verse 5, Ezekiel 34, 5 and following. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, meaning the sheep of God's flock. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all of the mountains and every high hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. That's what happens to sheep without a shepherd. But here's the other side of it. Sheep are so dumb, they don't know they're lost. They'll just sit there with their head in the grass, munching the one inch by one inch patch of grass in front of them, moving on to the next one, moving until they walk off a cliff or a wolf gets them or they freeze to death. They don't even know they're lost when they get lost. And so when Jesus says that his people are like a sheep without a shepherd, it's pointing to a people that are in great danger, but also without the resources to escape from that danger. Jesus is saying about his people, they are in grave danger of being consumed by all manner of beast and horror. And yet they don't have the wherewithal, the knowledge, the wisdom, the insight, the capability of escaping from it. So Jesus has this compassion because he sees his people and they are distressed and dejected and don't even know it. 
And so he says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his harvest. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, not unlike the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day, had abandoned the people. Because their attitude was they saw those who, who had need, those who were distressed and dejected, those who, those who needed a hand, those who needed to be gathered in, they saw them as lost causes. They saw them as the chaff to be burned up in the harvest fire. But Jesus saw them not as a lost cause, but Jesus saw them as a worthwhile harvest, something of value, something worth saving. Jesus sees them. He has compassion on them because he knows that they're children of God. Now, a little while later, Jesus is going to give us the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You remember that parable? The wheat and the weeds grow up beside each other, and the the harvest master tells his workers, no, bring it all in, and after the harvest is done, we'll sort them out. So our task is not to, to separate the wheat from the weeds in the field. That's not the task of the harvest worker. The harvest worker, the task of the harvest worker is not to stand at that door and say, you come in, you get to stay out, you come in, you get to stay out, you get to come in, you get to stay out. The task of the harvest worker isn't to look and say, "Mm, I don't like your haircut, you're not good enough. The task of the harvest worker isn't to say, I heard that last month you got drunk down at the beach, You, you don't get to come in. That's not the task of the harvest worker. The task of the harvest worker is to bring in the harvest. And the harvest master will separate the wheat from the weeds. But an important part of that for us to remember, too, is the wheat and the weeds are in the same field. And so we need to be careful that we're assuming that just because we're in the field that we're the wheat. There's an enormous need for workers, Jesus says. The workers are few. Yeah, the workers are few. When Jesus says the workers are few, they're, they're pretty few. They're one. They're Jesus. One, one is few. I don't care what you're playing. One is few. And so what does he tell them to do? He tells them to pray. Now we stop at the end of chapter 9. If we had kept going just a verse or two into chapter 10, we would see that Jesus does the original Jesus juke on the disciples here. Pray for the harvest workers. Oh, yeah, hey, by the way, guys, those harvest workers you prayed for, it's you. I'm commissioning you to go. I'm going to give you my authority to go. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Brothers and sisters, if you cannot look at the world around you and see the distressed and the dejected, I don't think I can help you. What breaks my heart is how many of them don't even know that they're distressed and dejected. They think they're living their best life now. They think everything is great. So many are lost. 
and distressed and dejected. Do we have compassion on them? When we see them, does our, do our guts burst open in our compassion for them? Or do we look at them and say, oh, there, but for the grace of God go I. I am so glad I am not like that man. Do we have compassion on them or do we act like the religious leaders of Ezekiel in Jesus' day? So the first thing we need to do is we need to have compassion. If we're going to be followers and imitators of the master, we follow and we imitate him in his compassion. The second thing is, is service. There are workers that are needed. Help wanted. We all know, we've all seen all of the stories about the, the lack of workers in retail and restaurants and everything else. But you know where the workers are always needed? The kingdom of God. But when Jesus directs them to prayer first, he's showing them that this is a spiritual crisis. Yes, there's a logistical crisis of having enough workers and getting them out into the field and bringing the harvest in. But first and foremost, it is a spiritual crisis. And so we need to have compassion and we need to have service, but we need, we must have prayer. We need to be praying. Who will reach the lost and the hell-bound world of hurt and sinful people who need to hear and accept the gospel? Who is going to tell them of their plight? Because brothers and sisters, they don't know they're lost. They're looking at the square inch of dirt in front of them, munching along, trying to keep alive, have no idea that they're lost. When you see a lost person acting like a lost person, don't assume that they know that they're lost. They've got no idea. So are you going to tell them of their plight? Are you going to show them a way out? Or are you going to leave them in that rocky ravine eating burnt up, dried out, dead grass when the master is over the hill with still waters and luscious vegetation. You know, prayer puts strength into our hands to do ministry. Prayer strengthens us to go out and do the work, but prayer also softens our heart. Prayer also gives us the heart of Christ to have compassion, to see the need, and the desire to see that done to see that accomplished. Our hymn of invitation is going to be 559, Rescue the Perishing.